0: So we're going to start Esther today. So you have to go and find that. And while you're looking that up, um, it's quite a short book. But we're going to read the first two chapters together this morning, um, and uh, then Andrew's going to come and preach to us on those. And and you know, if you, like that, the Bible is at the heart. Like this is God's word, and He's going to speak to us today. And sometimes. Uh, you know we're in the new testament and we're reading you know like a letter and it's very applicable and it's and then there's stuff like this uh, which is Andrew will come and talk to us about this so when i'm reading this sometimes people in uh, i'm going to start now but sometimes this is going to sound like a whole big pile of stuff okay so what i would say is when we're reading your words are into sentences what you're doing is you're trying to build it in your head like minecraft or sims or depending what generation you are however you relate to that okay so try and make the picture in your head of what we're looking at in the story and when i'm finished then i'll say this is the word of the lord and we'll all say thanks be to god and if you don't have a bible there's one at the back for you and you can take that home if you don't have one at home so here we go esther chapter one now in the days of ahasuerus They heard from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. The king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in gold different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the woman in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha and Abaktha, Zethar and carcass the seven in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment. Then Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshus, Meres, Marsena, and Macumen, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So this is what he said to them. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukan said, in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behaviour, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal letter go out from Britain among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who's better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom for its vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. Well, it would, wouldn't it? And they king proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. Chapter 2. After those things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, and what she'd done, and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers to his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of all the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that's Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, asked the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the woman, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace in the evening she would go in and in the morning she would remain in custody of shazgaz the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail and uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what except Haggai, what the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now, Esther was winning favour in the hour, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of give gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord.
1: uh, If you're new and visiting with us, you're really welcome, Um, especially welcome. uh, Good to see Ben and Emily back, still on honeymoon technically. Great, congratulations you guys. Um, My name is Andrew, I'm the pastor here in Village South. Um, like we've seen and heard, we're going to be starting this new series in the book of Esther. Um, if you're new to Village, what we do is we, we just take books of the Bible and work our way through them. And, and that allows God, through His Holy Spirit, to learn and teach uh, in, in our church. Um, but before we get into this book, right at the very, very beginning, there's two disclaimers that I want to put out there. Uh, firstly, um, <clears throat> this, Esther is a story story it's It feels like a novel, that's where it's written. It's supposed to. Um, it's not like when we were studying Hebrews just before. Um, and so as we move through this book, we're going to allow the the the, the, pace, the pace that we move through it. Um, it. I think if we're going to get the most out of study in this book, we need to let the author and the narrator of the story uh, set the pace. Um, it's a bit like in a film, so sometimes in a film the director can um, you know speed time up. So you can see in a movie where uh, years can pass in a matter of seconds, or uh, when the director wants us to, to pay attention to something, the time can slow way down, and we can uh, see things. So even in these first two chapters, we've already seen four years pass like that. Um, and so over the next five weeks, we're going to move at the pace of the story. And that means, this is the first disclaimer. That means that from week to week, there may be, you probably will have questions that are left unanswered. We're not going to skip ahead to the end and see how it all resolves. Um, and the second disclaimer is, I'm definitely coming to this uh, book with a, a, with a fair amount of trepidation um, because it seems to be a story that people really care about. Um, as I've been talking to people uh, about, you know, we're going to go into Esther and so on, everyone says, I love it, that story means so much to me. Um, and so I want to, uh, obviously I want to treat every uh, book with care, but but I know that this can this means a lot um, to some of you. On the other hand, some of you don't know this story at all. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this read. Uh, do keep reading ahead um, and and be prepared. Um, but either way, can I just ask, this is a second disclaimer, can I just ask you to set your preconceptions to one side? I don't, I don't think that we're going to learn anything that is... Um, brand new or revolutionary. I think we're going to learn the gospel through this story. We're going to see Jesus through this story. Um, but let's set our preconceptions to one side. And as we do that, and as we um, move at the pace of this story, I, I, think, I think we're going to hear God speak to us. I think we're going to be challenged. And I think ultimately, we're going to see, be left in awe at God's goodness and, and how he works in the world. Does that sound good? Good. Good. Um, let, let me pray for us one more time and then we'll begin Esther chapter 1. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Esther, this story of Esther and Mordecai and King Ahasuerus is your word. It's you speaking to us. Help us to see you at work and how you're at work in our lives and just the beauty of your son, Jesus. And let us be changed today. In his name, amen. Um, so I wonder if. You've ever had a situation in life where, where, or maybe someone said to you, This thing that happened to me makes it really hard for me to believe that God is in charge, and that God is in control. If God is in control, how could, how could this thing happen to me? Um, or maybe you've even had friends like I have who have said, it Sounds nice, but it's all wishful thinking, right? You know, a God that's in control behind the scenes. Uh, I mean, that sounds nice, but it's a comfort blanket. But ultimately, that's what it is. We know everything is coincidence. Um, and I wonder if you've maybe asked questions like that yourself, or you've thought those things. Maybe you said, well, if God is at work, how is He at work? What is He doing? Um, because maybe if we, if we read the Bible, we, we see a lot of miracles, for example. Uh, both Testament, uh, and if, but, but my guess is that most of us in our daily lives don't see a lot of miracles happening. So if God works by miracles, maybe He doesn't seem to do an awful lot. So how does God work in the world? And as we go back in time, two and a half thousand years to the Persian Empire, it's over there. That's why it's found over there. Um, it's that question, how is God at work in the world that we, that, that we find but answered? It's a, strange, it's a strange book in the Bible. Um, strange because God isn't mentioned in this book once, not even once. Neither is the law or the prophets, or sacrifices, or even prayer. And so I think we can relate to this book because if we're honest, there's probably a lack of prayer and God in our lives from time to time too. Certainly the lives of our friends or the lives of people around us in the world. So this absence of God, this, this, this silence that screams at us, leads us to ask the question, where is God and how is he at work in the world? And there's two things that we're gonna see uh, throughout this story and yes, I know I said let's not jump ahead to, to the end. But if you think of these two things as like lenses of a pair of glasses that we want to put on as we read this story, and and they are these: God is at work even when He seems absent, and God uses imperfect to accomplish His perfect plans. So God is at work even when He seems absent, and God uses imperfect people to accomplish His perfect plans. Now, in the, in, the, in the passage we just read, chapters one and two, uh, the. This is very much the introduction to the to the story. This is the opening scene of the movie, right? Um, the, 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 the narrator is putting all the major players into place. He's setting up the, the story before the real action and the real drama begins. Um, it's kind of like, you know, in Star Wars, the, the real Star Wars, the original ones, um, where uh, Luke Skywalker is just this orphan boy, he's working on the farm. But then these events happen um, that are outside of his control and it changes his life forever. Where uh he, he meets Obi-Wan Kenobi and he gets his lightsaber. And then before you know it, he's off to, to fight in the rebellion against the empire. And this is just what's going on in chapters one and two of Esther. But within these two chapters, there's a lot going on. Chapter one uh, shows us the, the power of this vast empire. And chapter two shows us the, the weakness of God's people within the empire. And there's three things we're gonna see this morning. We're gonna see a portrait of power the contrast of weakness and how weakness and power meet in Jesus. Portrait of power, the contrast of weakness and how they meet in Jesus. So let's begin with this portrait of power. Uh, the story begins with seemingly what, what looks from the outside at the very beginning to be invincible power. Chapter 1, verse 1 introduces to us the mighty king Ahasuerus and the span of his reign, right? This is a king who ruled over almost the entire known world at the time. It tells us that he ruled over uh, 127 provinces. If we were to put a map of the Persian Empire at this time on top of a modern map... Uh, Northwest India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, Northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Northern Sudan. I know I didn't memorize those. Imagine I memorized those. It's a vast, vast empire. And now, the point here is this is a time when people traveled on foot. There no cars, there no trains, there no Plains, it's rich even, could travel on horseback. And so if you lived in this empire at the time, you could never conceive of escaping it. You could never conceive of, of, of getting beyond the borders of the empire. He mentions here, the mention of 127 provinces is meant to, to, to give us the idea that there is nowhere to hide. This empire is inescapable. But not only is it inescapable, it's also invincible. King Ahasuerus was the most powerful man in the world. He ruled with absolute authority from the Himalayas all the way across to the Mediterranean Sea. The author of the story wants us to, to know just who is in charge. It's Ahasuerus. Verses two to eight, we see his magnificence come to light. You see, he's a powerful man, and like most powerful men. He's not humble. Power, worldly, isn't it? So he, he wants to know, everyone to know just how powerful and magnificent he is. And so he throws a banquet, a big party. Not just any party, a party that lasts for six months, right? I'm tired of a party after six hours, but six months, he gives this banquet for all his nobles and governors and officials. And after, and, and this party just has, has one purpose, to show off the power and the wealth and the magnificence of this one man. It's, it's over the top. It's brash. It's overkill. He overplays his hand. This is the kind of man that Ahasuerus is. He's almost this comical figure who, who, who wants everyone to know just how opulent he is. And after he throws this party, he throws another thank you party for the people in the capital city, Susa. Maybe they've just been a bit fed up with a party going on for six months in the whole city. And so he's like, well, for seven days, another week of partying. And This is where we see the detail of his wealth and his magnificence. All these details are not mentioned by accident. They're meant to teach us. They're meant to show us something. The curtains, the wine goblets. Actually, it says here, wine goblets are vessels of various kinds, right? That means that each wine goblet was different. It was unique. I mean, it's easy for keeping track of your drink during a week-long party, but, but actually it, it tells us that huge wealth, marble pillars, gold couches, not very comfortable, but they're gold, uh, precious stones. I mean, this is like Monaco on steroids. It's it, not only is this empire and this king inescapable and invincible, it's also meant to be irresistible. Everything here is meant to draw you in. There's a lot about this empire that is desirable. We all want to, be, we want to experience that level of opulence. We want to experience what would it be like? Do you ever think what it would be like to, tr- to fly first class? I always think that. I'd love to fly first class and get the champagne. That's what it's meant to do for us. The empire is inescapable and invincible and irresistible at the same time. We all know how that feels, doesn't it? Things we hate about the world, but also at the same time, I love the world, give me more of it. But in verse nine, we get the first glimpse that maybe, just maybe, the isn't as invincible as he thinks. Because here we meet the queen, Queen Vashti. And she's having a separate banquet in the palace for the women. Now, I'm not sure why there's a separate banquet for the women, um, but given what we're gonna learn later on about how this empire and this man treats women, it's not exactly surprising that they've been separated off. Anyway, the, the king is drunk and, and so he be like all worldly power. He wants to show off his power more and more. That's what worldly power does. Worldly power gets power and then wants to brag about it, wants to show it off. So he sends for Vashti, his trophy, his trophy wife. And again, we see this overkill. He doesn't just send one messenger. He sends seven eunuchs to bring her. Complete overkill from this comical cartoon character. Of course, Vashti, they just want to look at her. They don't want to meet her as a person. They just want to stare at her and objectify her. Very quickly, we see Queen Vashti's substance because she refuses to come. She refuses to come at his bidding just so a bunch of drunk men can stare at her and gawk at her. Well, this must have been embarrassing. The man who doesn't, as it turns out, control everything. You can imagine him, you know, spluttering into his wine, like a spit take whenever he finds out. hears that she's refused to do what she's told. Furious. You see, worldly power is scared of nothing more than that power being threatened. And one of the king's so-called wise men, he says to the king, listen, you can't let this slide. It's not just you; she's offending. It's not just your power that she's threatening. Vashti is setting a precedent for all the women of the entire empire. You need to do something. You see, worldly power always tries to hold on to power, no matter what. We see this all the time in, in politics, even here in our country. Uh, our politi- people w- will do anything to keep their positions of power. And then we see him going over the top again. He sends out this decree to the entire empire promises that every man should rule over his house and he does this all because he doesn't want his power to be threatened this supposedly all-powerful man going over the top like a spoiled child to impose his power on the whole world and it would be funny wouldn't it if it were not for the fact that it led to thousands upon thousands of women being oppressed And this is what worldly power tries throws tantrums and and jumps up and down and and shouts, Look how powerful I am. Listen to me. Worldly power is scared of nothing more than its power being undermined. Worldly power will do nothing to impose that power on other people. It will go over the top and step all over people to keep its power no matter what. And this is exactly what Hasiaris is doing here. But let's pause for a second. And pause the question, is he really invincible? Is this empire really inescapable? Is this empire really irresistible? You see, the story begins with, with almost invincible power, but actually we see the cracks beginning to appear. Maybe he's actually not in full control. The author invites us to, to think for a minute, wait, is he actually in control? Or is there something else going on here? It's an invitation for us to consider our own stories. To consider the forces of power and control we have imposed on us in our lives. We don't live in the Persian Empire, but but make no mistake, we do live in an empire nonetheless. The empire of the world is where we live. In fact, this, this theme of this 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 idea that the, the empire and the world are one is common throughout the Bible. Even John, when he's writing the book of Revelation, he uses the word Babylon just to talk about the world as the empire. We're meant to put ourselves in this story. And just like the people of the Persian Empire, we have no choice about it, right? We can't escape it. It's all around us. There's no alternative. And the power of, of this empire isn't of military might and armies and tyrannical, uh, self-obsessed kings, but it's an empire nonetheless. And sometimes, if you're like me, we can, we can feel by the power of this seemingly invincible, inescapable, and at the same time, irresistible empire, can't we? we why, why do I feel all this pressure to conform and think certain ways, but at the same time, I want more of this thing around me. I want to be more in the world and more of the world. We hate it, but we want more of it at the same time. Maybe it's the pressure to perform well in your education and and, and get a great career. It's the pressure to look a certain way, to have a a certain body shape or a a certain figure. Maybe it's the seduction of the world of of, of popularity or of, of success. What about the, the, the pressure to conform to, to certain ways of thinking? You see, the empire of this world uh, tries to wield this power over us that tells us that we will be on the outside, uh, we will be uh, on the wrong side of history if we don't think certain ways of sex, sex, sanctity of life and money. The empire we live in may not be one of a mad tyrant, but make no mistake, we do, although we do have lots of mad tyrants, but make no mistake, we live in an empire that seeks to control us. But consider this story so far. Perhaps that the forces of the empire that push us around, that get us down, that pressure us and, and, and tempt us, maybe, maybe they're not as powerful as they seem at first glance. Just as the cracks are beginning to appear here in our story, where are the cracks in the power of our world. The empire of the world, is it really invincible? Or is something else going on? That's our portrait of power. The next, we're going to see the contrast of this weakness. You see, the, the story moves from, from this portrait of invincibility and, and irresistibility to chapter 2, where we get a, a, what is what seems at first glance uh, irreversible weakness. King finally sobers up and his anger simmers down and, and you can imagine him in his he, hangover head just thinking, what have I done? He realizes that he's made an awful mistake. He had the most beautiful woman in the world, but of course he can't take her back. That would be far too, much, far too embarrassing for a man of, of his power and his stature. He's already told everyone in the empire that he's got rid of her. He would look pretty silly and sheepish if he took her back again. And he doesn't want to lose face. Actually, that's another part of worldly power, isn't it? Worldly power doesn't want to lose face. And so he has to find a replacement. After all, how can the great and powerful and magnificent Ahasuerus, the man, not have his trophy wife? Well, then one of his bright sparks, these, these guys... <laughs> One of his bright sparks has another idea. Why not have a contest to choose a new queen? You can have any woman in, in the empire, just take your pick. Let's send out men. Of course, they send out men to, to round up uh, all these virgins. Now, now, I want you to think about this for a second. What they're actually doing, worldwide level. Is they're going into towns and villages across an area of the globe which is three thousand miles wide, and they're bringing, they're they're taking teenage girls from their home, sometimes hundreds and thousands of miles to the city, just so the king can do whatever he wants with them. Think about that for a second. It says they are gathered, or gathering a crop. They have no choice. Again, we see worldly power imposing itself on the weak. Then in verse 5, we see something interesting. And as we read this story, it hits us like a slap in the face. It says, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, the capital city. And we're reminded, this is a story about the history of the people of God. Because up to this point, you could almost forget that, right? In the history of the people of God, A time after King David and after the kingdom of Israel has been divided in two, and the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, has been invaded by the Syrians, and the southern kingdom, called Judah, where where Jerusalem is, have been invaded and taken away by the Babylonian Empire, and then actually the Babylonian Empire is taken over by the Persian Empire, and that's where we find the the people in this story. Some of the Israelites, called the Faithful Revenant, have gone back to Jerusalem and they've started walls in the temple. But actually, they're still inside the empire too. But most of the Jews are still spread throughout the world in this vast empire. And here's one of them, this man called Mordecai. And he is the guardian of his young cousin, Esther. And in verse 7, we meet Esther for the first time. Listen to what it says about her. It says, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. I actually really like the way the NIV uh, translates. It says, she was lovely in form and feature. Isn't that just a great turn of phrase? Lovely in form and feature. Now, I don't think for a minute this is a degrading or demeaning or objectifying way of talking about this young woman. I think this is just simply a way of describing there was something about her. She's beautiful. She had a pretty face. She had a lovely personality. She was the kind of person that lights up a room when they enter it like that, don't we? People who can light up a room. And, and Esther, this young woman, has, it seems like she has everything going for her. Well, almost everything. You see, she's a Jew and she's living in exile in the empire. Verse 10 tells us that, that she hadn't revealed her ethnicity, her, her family background, the fact that she's a Jew, because Mordecai had told her not to. Mordecai, this man who loves her and has been like a, a dad to her. So when she's taken into the king's harem, she keeps her Jewishness quiet. And right from the beginning, we realize that this is not like a a Daniel situation. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, Daniel was another young Jewish person who was taken into the empire. We find him in the middle of the empire, but Daniel stands up to the empire. He repeatedly defies the empire. And this is not where we find right now, at least where we find Esther and Mordecai. They have embedded in the empire. Now, remember that thing I said about putting your preconceptions to one side? Well, this is one of these times because the point here is not to judge whether they're right or wrong to hide their identity. And honestly, with all the times that we conceal our faith, I think it'd be pretty hypocritical if we were to judge them. But remember one of the lenses of our glasses that God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plans? I think that's what's going on here. And what we see is that to be a Jew in this place is not something you can be proud of. It would put them in danger. Esther has everything going for her. But just like it has always been and still is, being part of the people of God puts you at the bottom of the heap. We're going to see this in more detail next Sunday. And this is something we can relate to, isn't it? You know, being in that position where we know that revealing our faith will, will put us at a disadvantage. We want the approval of other people being a Christian is not the way to get it. We all know what this is like. I used to work in social care and I had one boss who, who didn't respect or include my opinions on on how to care for young people because he knew that I'm a Christian. And he openly told me that if I, if I were to bring those views to bear on how I cared for people, it would be dangerous for them, it would be harmful for them. And so I was not consulted and things stuff like that. And I'm sure that you have your own versions of that story. And the point is that being part of the people of God puts you in a position of weakness in the world. Then Esther receives 12 months of beauty treatment in preparation for her night with the king. Now, before we're tempted to think that this in any way is a, gl- is a glamorous thing or an attractive thing, she gets given the best food, Gets given seven women. She's given 12 months of beauty treatment. What we think this is in any way glamorous, let me just paint a picture of what's really going on here, what we see in this text. You see, when a young young woman is is in the the, the virgin's part of the harem, she's then taken into the palace. She spends the night with the king. This is essentially audition. And then after that, she's moved to into a different part of the harem, the concubine's harem. It's so heartless. It's like the king has a pile of new goods and a pile of used goods. And when you've been with him, you're moved into the used pile. These women are, are, are treated completely like objects. And we can say women, but actually in the context of, 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 of our day, these are Girl. And after her night with the king, the young woman has almost zero chance of ever being called back. And then, of course, she has zero chance of ever marrying anyone else because she's been with the king. It's just disgusting. You see the position of weakness that this puts Esther in in this system? And we think, how can a person like this, she's young, she's a Jew, she's a sex object, how could she ever get ahead? How can her situation ever improve? How could, uh, where can redemption ever come from? You see how, how this weakness is in complete contrast to the invincibility of Ahasuerus and, and his empire? But as this part of the story comes to an end, we move from power that seems invincible but isn't, to weaken it seems irreversible with just a hint of redemption. You see, after a few years of waiting, um, actually, we know it's four years after uh, he sacked Vashti or got rid of Vashti, Esther has chosen to go and spend the night with the king. Now, let's put ourselves in her shoes for a second. And I just want to admit and, and say this, like, as a man, I... I I just can't, it's impossible for me to fully grasp terrifying and defiling this would have been for her. Um, You women in the room are are far better placed to put yourselves in her shoes than I am. But but let's imagine this young woman, probably in her late teens, maybe early twenties, being forced to give herself up completely. To offer herself up to this inescapable and invincible in this empire. The, 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 he is actually the personification of the empire. Imagine how terrifying that would be. Imagine how defiling that would be for her. But even in this darkest of night. Presumably the darkest night of her life not alone God is with her favor the king is attracted to Esther and against all the odds not only is she called back but she's also chosen queen over the entire empire now of course the skeptics would still say to our remember our questions at the start the skeptics would still say well I mean she's just lucky I mean yeah there's probably thousands of women from all over the 127 provinces but well, you know it's like winning the lottery it's unlikely but somebody has to win but I think that the author wants us to... There may be some higher power at work here. There, there may be just something else more powerful at work behind the scenes. Our society wants us to, to convince us that the, the visible world that we can see is all that there is, right? right? Especially in, in Western society, we live in a world that is driven by knowledge and science. Since the days of the Enlightenment, that's the way it's been. Knowledge and science... Um, Bertrand Russell, who was a a scientist in the 19th century, he said, whatever science cannot discover, man cannot know. In other words, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. This is the world we live in. We know this. You've all had conversations about this. I'm sure. But the story of Esther, even right here in the beginning, wants to subvert that view, right? Maybe there is more going on than we can see. Maybe there's more than meets the eye. This story said that there must be something else going on. Maybe real power is not the seemingly invincible power of the empire at all. These first two chapters of this story are an invitation to ask, is it really true that the strong of the world pull all the strings and direct the course of history? King Ahasuerus was the most powerful man in the world. And from all appearances, his power was And yet, here's a series of events that have begun to unravel and he thinks he's in control. But they're actually completely outside of his control. The true power in the world has begun to be revealed. Unknown to him, there's a a woman from among the people of God who now sits on the throne. This young Jewish woman has gone from a place at the bottom of the heap to being the most powerful woman. When I say that, I want you to realize that being a queen doesn't give you any real power as we've seen with Queen Vashti. This unknown to the king, an old Jewish man, Mordecai, has saved the the life of the king by discovering this plot to kill him. The real power in the universe is beginning to show itself. And so as we come to an end this morning, let me ask, what comfort in this is there for us? The empire is strong. We know that, that, don't we? The people of God are weak. We know that. We feel that, don't we? How is this good news for us? Well, this is where I want us to see how power and weakness meet and how they meet in Jesus. You see here, two unlikely people have been put in place by this invisible hand. See, Christopher Ash, who was one of my teachers on this subject, he said, that's what he says. Two unlikely people have been put in place by an invisible hand. I love visible hand. A young Jewish woman is now queen of the Persian Empire. An old Jewish man has become the savior of the king of the Persian Empire. They are two weak and vulnerable people who have unexpectedly found themselves already at this stage in the story in positions of influence. Coincidence? No. God is at work even when we can't see him. God is the true power in the universe. There's nothing that happens that he hasn't. And there's something about what is happening with Esther and Mordecai in this story already that shows us something about the very nature of God. The power of God subverts our understanding of power and weakness. Could it really be that strength lies in weakness? As we see the weakness of, of, and vulnerability of Esther against the backdrop of this empire, you see, then we, uh, we can, our attention is drawn to another contrast of power and weakness in the context of another vast empire. Think of a baby born, a baby boy born outside of marriage to another virgin Jewish woman in a poor family, in a despised village, in an underprivileged region of the empire. And this boy will grow up to live a life of poverty and rejection. And as a man, he's ultimately going to die at the hands of the empire. And we say, where is the sense in this? Where, Where does the true power lie? But yet we know that this is all part of God's plan. In fact, it's the culmination. That baby boy growing up to be a man, to die at the hands of the empire, is the culmination of God's plan. And these things happening here in Esther, 500 years before this baby boy was born, Leading to and pointing forward to this moment. And the baby boy is Jesus, by the way. And in Jesus, we get to see what real power is like. Not worldly power that, that jumps up and down and demands to be obeyed and and, and and in order to control people. But ultimate power, real power that lays itself down. Not to control the world, but to save the world. Now, for a King Jesus and King Ahasuerus. Consider these two kings. King Jesus doesn't force his power on us. He lays down his power for us. King Jesus doesn't force himself on the weak and the vulnerable for his own gratification. Just to have his own way with them. He offers himself up for the weak and the vulnerable. Esther, on that night. And she's called in to the king's bed. She approaches the king and the king says, give yourself to me and maybe I'll choose you. Our king, King Jesus says, I have chosen you, and so I've given myself for you. Our king says, I've laid down my life for you. You don't have to lay down yours for me. And this is where the good news lies for us. As Christians, yes, we live in the empire. Yes, we have no choice about it. And we will continue to live in the empire until Jesus returns and overthrows it completely once and for all. And and yes, the empire is invincible and it's inescapable. And yes, we know it's oh so irresistible. But we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to live without hope. Just for a second as we end, think how you feel in your life. What's specific to you that comes to your mind as I'm saying this. Maybe it's, is that body image stuff? Maybe it's money stuff? Maybe it's the pressure to be unethical or dishonest in your job to get ahead. Think about whatever, however the, the, the empire tries to control you specifically in your life. Think about your weakness in contrast to the power of whatever those things are for you. And now consider where the real can you see what real power looks like in Jesus? Can you see how he defied and defeated the empire by laying down his life for you? When Jesus died and was buried, it must have seemed to his followers like the empire had won. Finally, we got rid of this guy. The story didn't end there, did it? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. As my kids say, he came back to life. Jesus rose again. And in doing so, he emphatically declared on the empire of the world and the empire of hell itself, You have done your worst to me, and yet here I am in victory. Jesus stands in victory, and we share in his victory because he offered himself for us. Do you see how this works? Do you see how real power and weakness work? There's been a verse rattling around in my head uh, for two weeks, the time I preached here. And it's from Hebrews thirteen. Still can't get escape Hebrews. Hebrews thirteen, verse six says this: "The Lord is my helper; I will not fear. What can man do to me? The empire did its worst to our king, and he still stands in victory. So, what do we have to fear? We can live in the empire, knowing how the story turns out. We hear this way, don't we? Esther and Mordecai." We 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 know how the story ends, we know we have the victory in Jesus, and, and yes, we live in the Empire, and yes it seems invincible, and yes it seems inescapable, and yes it's oh so irresistible to us. But we don't have to be afraid, and we don't have to give in, because we've already seen, even at the beginning of this story, that the Empire is not as strong as it seems. And we know who our real king is, and more than like, and even more than that, he knows us. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you that you're not like King Ahasuerus. Thank you that you do not demand us to give ourselves for you, but you give yourself for us. You're so lovely compared to earthly and worldly power. Um, We need need to see more of you if we're going to Survive and, and keep on living in this empire. Forgive us for all the times that we do give in to the temptation of the empire. Or help us, strengthen us and encourage us. Knowing that that victory that you stand in, knowing that you've ultimately defeated this empire. And Father, as we come to your table, would you help us to see your power displayed in weakness as you gave yourself up to You, you meet us again at the table. In Jesus' name.